Chapter 7 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Angelisi. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 7 The Period of Pragmatism. There have been many periods in the history of the drama. The periods, for instance, of Sophocles, Calderon, Shakespeare, Moliere, Racine, and Sheridan, during which every tragedy or comedy of any excellence has been constructed in accordance with a single formula, a formula in each case invented by a group of minor artists and developed to its fullest fruition by the dominant dramatic genius of the age. In these periods there has been no appreciable disagreement among playwrights as to how to build a play. The question of the form has been regarded, for the time, as settled, and the scope for individual innovation has been restricted to the content of the drama. One dramatist might differ from another in the mood and message of his plays, but both authors would employ the same methods of technical attack. In dealing with such periods as these, it has always been comparatively easy for dramatic critics to determine certain fixed standards by which to measure the technical merit of any play of the period. All that Aristotle had to do was to explain inductively the structural principles which had been employed by Sophocles, and his treatise became at once a textbook for all subsequent authors of Greek tragedy. When Regnard determined to write comedies, he never thought of asking questions as to how to build a play. There was but one way to his mind, the way, of course, of Moliere. And Regnard made his comedies according to the methods of his master. But these conditions of creation and of criticism do not obtain in the present period of the drama. We are, as Tennyson remarked, the heirs of all the ages, and we have taught ourselves by study of the past and experiment in the present a myriad different ways of making plays. Ghosts is a great drama. And so is the bluebird. Strife is a good play, and so is Sumeroon. But how is the critic to determine inductively, from the study of such dissimilar instances as these, any fixed and serviceable standard by which to measure the technical merit of any other drama of the present period? He might indeed determine, after the thorough study of the second Mrs. Tanqueray, that Pinero's method is the best for making modern plays. But in that case, what would he allow himself to say concerning Serrano de Bergerac, or the playboy of the Western world? It was chiefly with this modern age in his mind that Mr. William Archer began his manual of craftsmanship entitled Playmaking, with the sagacious statement that there are no rules for writing plays. He might have added as a corollary that there can be, in consequence, no rules for judging them. In this eclectic age of composition, the critic must fall back upon that attitude of mind known to philosophers as pragmatism. The pragmatists, despairing of the discovery of any absolute, unalterable truth, and being tempted even at times to doubt of its existence, rely, for the immediate purpose of thinking, upon any theory that seems for the moment to fit the facts, and, whenever this theory is controverted by a more Catholic experience, relinquish it cheerfully in favor of some other hypothesis which is adequate to serve its turn. They do not ask for the utter truth, 
they ask only for a theory that shall seem to serve and by this modesty they ensure their philosophy against any disaster from disproof pragmatism can exist only in an age that is able without discomfort to disbelieve in dogma we live in such a period of the dramatic art our contemporary playwrights imagine no necessity to agree upon a creed of making plays any method will serve provided only that it shall prove itself of service this is the spirit of the present age an age adventurous and youthful a period as the phrase is alive and kicking and therefore one indisputably great and since criticism must ever follow and not lead creation since the critic must always report the artist like a boswell instead of teaching him like a mentor it follows that the critic of the contemporary drama must maintain an open mind toward any sort of effort and must judge it not in reference to any predetermined rule but solely in reference to the particular intention of the author the critic of the current drama must enjoy the thunderbolt and must also appreciate the yellow jacket though the peculiar merits of either composition would have been transmuted to defects if they had been incorporated in the other there is no one way of making plays at present and the duty of the critic is not to argue in favor of any method against any other but merely to explain in any given case the particular formula that the playwright has chosen to employ the one thing that makes the function of the open-minded commentator unfalteringly pleasurable at the present time is that every year or so he is required by some new playwright to alter his entire definition of drama he may have decided after long study that something must always happen in a play and then suddenly he will be swept from his anchorage by the london performance of elizabeth baker's chains of which the whole point is that nothing by any possibility can happen to the characters he may have stated time and time again that the method of our modern drama is more visual than auditory that at present the scenario is more important than the dialogue and that as mr augustus thomas had put it every good contemporary play must employ as its basis any interesting pantomime and suddenly without forewarning he will find himself applauding such a piece as hindle wakes which reverses all these propositions and builds its merits on their opposites any drama that can do this to the critic is undeniably alive and unless the critic can respond with equal avidity to these incongruous impressions he is unsuited to the present age of pragmatism but even the pragmatist must yearn occasionally for some vision however fleeting of that absolute unalterable truth of which they question the existence and even the most open-minded dramatic critic must sometimes desire to establish some certain standard of judgment by which he may measure the merit of plays so utterly different in intention and in method as hedda gabler and peter pan this desire is akin to that which in all ages has moved the high and immortal dreamers of our human lineage to seek some single god to supplant in the imagination of mankind and more convenient and pragmatic gods that were assumed by our forefathers as the rulers of the world the human mind seeks always for some supreme and single thought and arbors purality and heterogeneity as nature abhors a vacuum therefore 
if we may descend suddenly from the general to the particular the critic of any art desires always some single and indisputable standard by which to estimate the most divergent and incongruous examples of that art he feels the necessity of some axiom sufficiently catholic to cover and to justify his instinctive homage to two statues so divergent for example as the venus of melos and the thinker of august rodin in intention and in method these works are obviously different but what is the essence of that mystery that tells us intuitively that both of them are great this question is not difficult to answer any work of art is good if it forces the spectator to imagine and to realize some truth of life and any effort of art is bad if it fails of this endeavor here is the final test of efficiency and it should be noted that in this test there is no question of technique any play regardless of the method of the author is a good play if it awakens the audience to a realization of some aspect of the infinitely various assertions of the human will it must impose upon the spectator the educative illusion of reality it must by this means increase vicariously his experience of life and by adding to his understanding of mankind it must broaden his potential range of sympathy in human beings both similar and dissimilar to himself it must exhibit some picture of the particular so tactfully selected and displayed that it shall suggest a momentary vision of the absolute it must lead the public out of living into life by a standard so essential and so catholic as this the critic may equitably estimate the merit of innumerable plays of any period however divergent they may be in method it does not ultimately matter whether a play is realistic or romantic visual or auditory tightly or loosely constructed whether it casts its emphasis on character or incident on scenario or dialogue it is required only that it command the spectator to pause for a moment in his drift of living and to envisage the reality of life which is perennial and absolute this is a requirement that is fulfilled by plays so different in technical details as tanqueray and serrano ghosts and sumeroon to accomplish this effect any method will serve so long as it shall prove itself of service the first thing to be considered in estimating the merit of a new play is therefore the sincerity of the author's purpose has he honestly and earnestly endeavored to say something that is new and true or has he merely effected a new combination of old theatrical materials with the expectation of producing a series of transitory thrills in the latter case although his play may run a year it cannot be considered an addition to dramatic literature but in the former case although the piece may fail the critic must proclaim it worthy for as stevenson has said a spirit goes out of the man who means execution all who have meant good work with their whole hearts have done good work every heart that has beat strong and cheerfully has left a hopeful impulse behind it in the world and bettered the tradition of mankind but a determination to tell the truth though it is indeed the most important item is not the only asset of excellence in the drama art would be a very simple exercise of telling the truth were in hamlet's phrase as easy as lying but it is often hard to tell the truth and nothing but the truth 
Any telling of the truth implies the collaboration of two parties, the party of the first part, who does the speaking, and the party of the second part, who does the listening. A dramatist must not only represent his truth in a manner that is satisfying to his own mind, but must also express it in a manner that shall be convincing to his audience. To achieve this delicate endeavor, a high degree of technical accomplishment is necessary in terms of the particular method that the dramatist has chosen. In the drama, as in every other art, technique is not an end in itself, but only a means to the great end of telling the truth. In the estimation of the critic, technical dexterity should be considered always as secondary, not a primary concern. Any method must be adjudged a good method unless it betrays the playwright into compromise or falsification. But clever workmanship that is exercised in the display of trivial material is not admirable in itself. It is difficult to estimate the comparative importance of several dramas, each of which, in its own way, unfalteringly tells the truth. But it is easy enough to determine if a play is bad either because of technical inefficiency or because of a conscious and responsible surrender of his own appreciation of the truth, the playwright will report his characters as doing certain things or saying certain things, which those people in those situations could not possibly have said and done. And the critical auditor will revolt from the representation with a subconscious sense that he knows better than to believe the fable that is being set before him. End of chapter 7. Recording by Sarah Angelisi.